Father, thank you for your glory being made known to us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we open up the scriptures this morning, as we recount the story of Christmas, I pray that this would not just be a routine that we do once a year, but God, this would be the glorious truth of the gospel made known to us, and that we would walk away from here worshiping and praising you because you are the glory of God in the highest. So we give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat and grab your Bible and meet me over in Isaiah chapter 9. And Merry Christmas to you. We are wrapping up a Advent series through the names of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9. If you go to verse 6, Isaiah 9, 6, here's what it says. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. In those two verses, or in those two statements alone, you actually get the fullness of all theology. Going back 600 years before Jesus was ever born, this declaration was the promise that Isaiah gave to the nation of Israel in the coming conquest that was about to happen. He tells you, hey, your hope, your hope for the future is to us a child is born. That is, that is Jesus's humanity. If you didn't know this, Jesus would come into the world and he was fully God and fully man. He says, to us a child is born, but not only that, a son is given that's telling you something outside of you was going to come into the world. And he says, and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That word wonderful means too mighty for words to describe he would be a wonderful counselor. He'd be a mighty God, an everlasting father. And today we're going to look at the last name. He is the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. With everything going on in this world right now, doesn't it ring true that all of us need peace? I mean, you turn on the news for five minutes during this holiday season, you're going to see the world is in a dystopia, not a utopia. Everything seems to be going wrong and we need a Prince a piece. I once heard a story about a, a kid who was going to write a note to Santa for a gift on Christmas. So he begins to write the letter and he says, dear Santa, I've been a great boy this, and he's like, nah, that, that, that's too much. Dear Santa, I've been, I've been a pretty good boy this year. He's like, that's too much. Dear Santa, he looks over and he looks at the Christmas tree and he sees the nativity scene. So he grabs Mary from it. He comes back to his pen and sheet of paper and he hides Mary underneath his pillow and he starts to write, dear Santa, if you ever want to see your mom again, you need to give me. Doesn't it, isn't that the human condition? Isn't that the human condition for most of us? We have unrest until we get what we want and we're willing to just pretty much leverage everything until we get it. Historians will tell you that over the last 3,400 years, get this, there has only been 268 days of peace in the world. Just this year alone, 4,000 people have been murdered in the United States, and there have been 13 major wars with over a half a million people and counting dead in Ukrainian war. If there's anything we can agree on, there is not peace in this world, but much more than that, there is not peace in most of our own homes. Some of you are dreading the fact that you're going to go home tomorrow, sit around the dinner table, and the political talks are going to show up. And Uncle Johnny's going to say something inappropriate like he always does. Maybe you have a teenage daughter that thinks you're the devil right now and she won't even talk to you. For others of you, your marriage feels more like a college roommate than a soulmate. Pretty depressing Christmas message, isn't it? Here's the reality. Despite what Miss America tells you, the only way you're going to get world peace is through the Christmas story. 
See, what Jesus does is he answers for you how to have the greatest peace in your heart and in this world. Again, take your Bible, flip over to Luke chapter 2. I want to show you the Christmas story real quick, and I want to give you some context. Luke chapter 2, here's what it says in verse 1, in those days... In those days, what Luke is trying to show you is what was happening historically, but in those days, it was a pretty tumultuous time. Rome, Rome was ruled by a man named Gaius Octavius, and this guy came into his ruling capacity through an iron fist. He had just won a civil war. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and he, he proclaimed himself the king who brought justice and peace to the world. However, the peace that he brought was a pretty nasty peace. The only way that you got his peace is if you did what you were told. Well, this guy, Octavius, he puts out a decree that everybody needed to be registered because the government needed to collect taxes and count their men. You see, back in those days, there were only two reasons that you would take a census. Number one is you needed to know how many fighting men you had so that you could go to war, continue to conquer the world, and continue to have the dominating peace that you thought you had. Number two, it's all about the Benjamins. See, in order for the Roman government to maintain peace, they had to continually give their people more stuff. Think, think about the Pax Romana. They would, they would continually gift things to people to make them happy. They, they, they created the greatest road system ever. They say over 50,000 miles of road and infrastructure was created by the Roman Empire, and all that was to keep people happy. But I want you to notice something in the text, because Luke is doing something super important, and he wants you to understand that there is only one way that peace can come into the world. He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The first thing you need to notice is that name Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the name that Octavius was given by the Roman Senate. It's not actually his name. What it was is it was a proclaimed deification of Octavius. The word Caesar meant ruler. The word Augustus actually means to be holy or to be set apart and the majestic one. He was the first ruler in the Roman Empire that was given this name or this title that was only given to the gods. What you're gonna see is that Luke, the gospel writer, is about to show you a contrast between two people, between a self-proclaimed God who said that he came into the world to save the world and bring peace and justice to the world, but he does it through bloodshed and power. And then he's going to show you another God who doesn't just self-proclaim it. He's not a man trying to become God. He is God that becomes man. See, back when Jesus was born, the Romans were deifying their rulers, it is said to, it is believed that Caesar Augustus was literally a man that became God. And that's why he was able to, if you notice, make the whole world be registered. See, you see the arrogance in that statement? The Roman Empire was the entire world. What Luke wants you to know, and this is what Christmas should confront you with, is there really are two ways that you can try to obtain peace in this world. Here they are. You can either be a man trying to become God, which is the human condition. Ever since the beginning of the world, the greatest sin is that man is trying to become God. Or you can put your trust in a God who became man. You see, the source of every conflict in the world and the source of every conflict in you is this war going on inside of your hearts. James, in James chapter 4, here's how he says it. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are are waging war within you. Here's what he's saying. 
The real war going on in the world starts in your heart. That there is an unrest going on in your soul that is causing you to look for power and hunger and other things. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great, the great historian who was a part of the, the Gulag, say, they wrote the book, The Gulag Archipelago. Listen to what he says. He says, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. So that's the scene. The scene that God decided to enter into humanity was a scene where the humanity was trying to rule the world. He came at the pinnacle of man trying to live as God so that he can show you that that's not the way to have peace. And do we not need that message in 2023 when it seems like there's a lot of people trying to take over the ruler and be on the throne? The way I've heard it said is that all of us want the kingdom without the king because we want to be the king. Verse two, here's what it says. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria. <clears throat> and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Why all the details? Well, here's why. Because Christianity is the only world religion that is actually rooted in history. It's the only religion that claims that your God came into history at a specific time and a specific place. You can actually go back to the writings of Caesar Augustus and you can date it back to the time when Jesus was born. You can historically verify the things going on. Now, there's one thing there's one thing I need to point out really quickly because a lot of you go to the History Channel and you watch these shows that debunk Jesus or you've heard some college professor tell you that there's some historical inaccuracies. The one here is about Cornelius. If you've heard this before, if a historian has ever told you this, Cornelius was the governor of Syria around 6 to 8 AD. That's a problem because Jesus was born prior to that. It's said by Josephus that he took a controversial um, census during that time. Now, here's what's fascinating about that statement. Number one is this. We found new fragments that have claimed and shown that Cornelius is actually probably the governor twice, once during Caesar Augustus' time and then once during the other time. So it's quite probable that he actually took a census the first time before that. Now, if that doesn't satisfy you, there's actually quite a good explanation within the text itself. If you actually look at that, this was the first registration. That word in Greek for first is the word protos, which can actually mean first or it can mean before. So check this out. If you translate it before, this was the, fir, or this was the registration before Cornelius was governor. It takes care of itself. So either way that you do that, you can see that there are good explanations, and here's what you need to know. Nothing in the Bible is off, and you don't have to be scared of it. When somebody on TV or some college professor challenges you and tells you that there's a, there's a contradiction in the Bible, there's probably a pretty good explanation as to what he's saying. The other thing is, I, I went to Israel last year, and I learned that only 5% of Israel has actually been excavated. And every year, as they find more stuff, it is absolutely fascinating how much it validates the historicity of the Bible. See, there's no contradictions in the Bible, and you can believe that it is a reasonable faith because the Bible is rooted in history itself, which means that you should go and check it. Now, the last one is this. If you remember Isaiah chapter 9, if you have your place, go back to there. Isaiah chapter 9 was written 600 years before Jesus ever took his place in human history. And listen to what it says, Isaiah 9, 1. <clears throat> But there will be gloom 
for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. See, the land of Galilee, where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, if you look his, uh, geographically, is in the far north of the country. So they would have had to gone from Galilee, 80 miles south, to Jerusalem for this census. Well, what's so significant about Galilee is Galilee is the place that historians will tell you has had more bloodshed than any other place in the world throughout human history. It was a land of deep darkness. This valley that he is referring to is called the Valley of Armageddon. I actually stood on top of this mountain in the northern part of Israel. It's called Tel Megiddo. Tel means mountain over the city of Megiddon. If you, if you know anything in Hebrew, Armageddon is actually two Hebrew words, har, which means mountain, mountain or hill of Megiddon. As you're standing there and you're looking over, you can stand on top of the mountain and you look to one side and you see the beautiful coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. You can actually look over and you can see the exact spot that Pontius Pilate lived and that Paul was imprisoned for two years there before he was shipped off to Rome. It is unbelievably gorgeous. Then you look over on the other side and you see this beautiful, fertile valley called the Valley of Armageddon. It was so important because it connected the northern world from the southern world in a trade route, and most battles took place in this valley. Matter of fact, on that exact mountain is the mountain where Elijah went to battle with the prophets of Baal, and the rain came down. There's so much that happens in this one place, but what you need to know is it was historically the place of deep darkness. Nothing good happened there. Nothing. Verse 2, and the people who walked in darkness by the way, if you know anything about Israel, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, where, where they would have been in bloodshed and terror for their entire lives. They're walking in deep darkness. But what does it say? They have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone, meaning it came from outside of them. Watch this. In the place of the deepest darkness of the world, that's where Jesus came to live his life. See, he wouldn't just come though. He would come because a man who tried to be God and conquer the world could never do it. So the God of the world came into humanity so that he could move the world in such a way to accomplish his plan. Listen, y'all, if there's anything that the Bible should teach you, it should teach you this. God is in control. And when everything seems lost, when it seems like the battle is over, it might just be the perfect time for God to step into human history to do the exact thing that you could have never, ever imagined. Like Joseph, when, when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery and it seems like all is lost, God is placing Joseph in Egypt so that whenever there's a famine, he can be in a position of power in order to save the world. And what does Joseph say to his brothers? Hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. See, this happens all the time. It's like the nation of Israel. If you, if you know anything about the history of Israel, the prophet Habakkuk looks to God and he says, God, why are you letting all this happen? After the nation of Israel is spread out because they've been conquered by the Babylonians and they're taken from their land. And God said, if I even began to tell you, you wouldn't be able to understand. But then in Acts chapter two, when the spirit of God comes on all the people, well, where did those people come from? Those people came from all the surrounding nations that they went into deportation to. And then God brings them back and he starts the greatest church plant 
planting movement in the history of the world. And this is exactly what God did. Whenever he took a king, he took a king and he brought him into this world to be born in your place. So Joseph and Mary, they're living in Nazareth and they saddle up on a donkey and take an 80 mile trek south to the, nation, uh, to the city of Jerusalem to be registered for this census, to go to their hometown in Bethlehem. Now I'm just telling you, I can't imagine if you, again, if you can, if you can picture in your head, it's not this beautiful, like little hilly terrain. They were trekking through mountains and she is in her third trimester, y'all. One of the ways you know the Bible is true is that Joseph's still alive. Imagine trying to get your wife in the third trimester to saddle up on a donkey and go on an 80 mile trip to go register for a census. All the while, just another important detail, the Roman government probably didn't care that they went back to their hometown to be, sent, to be registered. This is so fascinating. The reason why they would have been, went back is not because the Roman government cared that they went back to their hometown, but because the Jews cared that they went back to their hometown because they kept meticulous records of everything that happened in their history. And they cared about their family lineage. See, why does that matter? Well, God made a decree that the, the son of God or the Messiah would come and be born in Bethlehem of the lineage or the household of David. So what does God do? God takes somebody from the household of David who's living 80 miles north and he moves the government around like a game of checkers in order to accomplish his plan so that Jesus could be born in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. Y'all, the next time you think that the government is in control or some Caesar is on the throne, here's what you need to know. They might be ruling, but there is a God who overrules everything that they do and you never should forget that. God is in control and he is at work and he always has been. Verse six says, and while they were there, the time had come for her to give birth. And she gave birth to a firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the end. You know, there was, there was one study that was recently done by a secular statistician at a university. And, and he asked his students, hey, I want you guys to go and I want you to figure out what the probability is that Jesus could have fulfilled any of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Well, a group of students, they, they went and did all this work and, and one of them comes back and he says, he says, I think that we found eight prophecies that Jesus actually fulfilled in the Bible. Do you know what the probability would be that Jesus himself would fulfill eight prophecies? They say it's one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a hundred quadrillionth of a chance. So let me put this into terms for you. If Jesus were to fulfill eight prophecies in the Old Testament, it would be like you guys taking quarters, filling up the state of Texas two feet high, me writing your initials on one of those quarters, throwing it into the pile, blindfolding you, and asking you to go fill around until you found that quarter. That would be the probability that Jesus could fulfill eight prophecies. Another student comes back and he says, I don't think it's eight. I actually thought it was 48. Here's the probability of 48, one in 10 to the 157th power. Now, I don't even know what that would look like. Do you know it wasn't eight? Do you know it wasn't 48? Do you know that Jesus fulfilled 456 prophecies of the Old Testament? 
Every single thing in this word is there to give you confidence. And they're historically verifiable. See, your king, your king wasn't born in a palace and he didn't grow up in royalty. Your king was born so low so that you could never be too low for him to relate to. You got to understand this. I want to give you a more accurate picture of what the manger scene would have looked like, where Jesus would have been born. It would have most likely been a barn filled with animals. For some odd reason, because of our American lens, when we hear the word in, we think hotel. What would have probably been the case is it would have probably been a place where the animals were kept like a barn. And then there was a refuge or a place that you would sleep as your animals slept outside. Well, when Jesus's parents, Mary and Joseph got to the inn, there was no place for them. So historically, they probably would have slept in a cave filled with animals. Think about that for a second. Not only that, his cute little bassinet that his manger was in would have most likely been a stone feeding trough that the animals ate their dinner out of. That's where Jesus would have been laid in a cave. I know that picture probably doesn't help with your little cute manger scene that sits on the mantle at home, but it's a much more accurate picture of the birth narrative of where the Savior in the world came. And that's super important because he wants you to know that no matter what you've done or where you've come from, you're not lower than he was. Matter of fact, there's a couple more details that tell you exactly how the peace that you have was accomplished. Notice that he was the firstborn son. And in Jewish history, to be the firstborn meant that you belonged to God. Not only that, you didn't just belong to God. You were the insurance policy for your parents. You passed on the family name. You took care of your family as they got older. Now notice what they did with their firstborn son. They wrapped him up in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the end. One of the common myths that you hear around Christmas time is that Jesus was born in a, he, he, wasn't, he was born in this barn in a cute, little, a cute little scene and it wasn't the Ritz, but the reality is, the reality is, and this is super important, it was a cave in Bethlehem and that cave is really, really significant because the cave is where the shepherds would live who kept the sheep for sacrifice. Again, I remember being in there and I'm walking around and, and I'm sitting there with this Jewish historian and he says, Billy, I want you to touch the walls of this cave. And, and I began to touch the walls and they're really sharp. He says, do you know what they would do with the sheep? The sheep that were for sacrifice? Because they had to be perfect and spotless. They would wrap the sheep up in swaddling cloth so that they wouldn't rub their sides up against the cave and cut themselves so that they would be perfect for sacrifice. Think about that picture. Your God came into the world, born in a cave where the sheep were kept for sacrifice, and he was wrapped up in swaddling cloth so that he'd be perfect for sacrifice. See, the Christmas story is a story about how God would come to bring peace into the world. And the way that he would come to bring peace into the world is that God would become a man, and he would do war against the evil that continues to divide us, but he wouldn't do it through force or power. He would do it through humility and substitutionary sacrifice. Did you know that there are only two times in the entire Bible that the verbs to be wrapped up and laid down are put together? The first one is in Luke chapter two, where Jesus is wrapped up and laid down. And the second one is at his death, when they take him off the cross and they wrap him up and they lay him down. Y'all, Christmas isn't about a cute, cuddly little baby. Christmas is about how the God of the universe came in to win the world to himself. It's about God becoming man so that he could bridge the gap between you and him. So Mary and Joseph... 
They found themselves in the sheep cave with their firstborn son who was made for sacrifice. And the kid, the kid who would be born would trek 80 miles back to the north where he would live out the rest of his life in Nazareth, the place of deep darkness. I find it fascinating that the people that lived in deep darkness were the very first people that God decided that he was going to shine his light on. By the way, did you know that the final battle in the entire Bible, the book of Revelation will tell you where it's going to be. It's going to be in that same exact valley, the valley called the Valley of Armageddon. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Just so you know, every time that somebody encounters an angel in the Bible, they're filled with great fear. I don't know if like your image of this, but sometimes you guys have this, this cute, cuddly little image of an angel. If I had a more accurate picture, it'd probably be my 18-month-old who is a living terrorist. And that's probably what an angel, every time you see him, you want to jump a little bit. But these angels, they said to him, fear not, fear not. Why do they say that? Well, because they're afraid. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Y'all, haven't birth announcements gotten to be pretty crazy? (laughs) Maybe my favorite one I've seen lately is I saw, um, it was a gender reveal, and it was two guys. One of them was dressed in a pink sumo outfit. The other one was dressed in a blue sumo outfit, and they staged a wrestling match in order to show who, I mean, that's my kind of announcement, right? Um, When when we had our second baby, um, my wife had, we had this long driveway when we lived in Durham and she had written a cryptic message as I was going down the driveway um, that she was pregnant with our second child. And it was, it was awesome. Um, the other one that I saw recently that I just thought, man, there's nothing funnier than this is a wife comes up to her husband and she hands him the pregnancy test. And, and he looks at it and he starts to get frustrated. He's like, really? You're going to give this to me now? Like we're about to go on vacation. And you're going to hand me this right now? And she's like, I'm confused. He's like, I can't believe that you would do this right before we go on vacation. And she looks at him and she says, do you know what that is? He said, it's a COVID test. (laughs) (laughs) Did you notice who God made the birth announcement to first? The shepherds. You know that the Jewish Mishnah, which is the writings of the Jews, would actually tell you that shepherds were so low in society that they lived by themselves. They were, they were so low on the societal rung that they weren't even allowed into the temple or in the presence of God to worship. See, they spent the majority of their life, they spent the majority of their life in isolation taking care of smelly, nasty sheep. And that's who God decided to announce his birth to. Church, here's a warning here. For many of the religious people of our time, we look down on people that we find not to be worthy of the gospel. And I want you to see that every single detail in here, you have a nobody person who is born in a nobody city that lives his life in a land of deep darkness to a nobody people. And the birth announcement of the savior of the world comes to a nobody group of people that nobody liked. Church, what you need to understand is this, that God comes to the lowly. And maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe some of you feel like you're walking into this room and it's your obligatory thing that you have to do because your family makes you and you feel like you have nothing to offer to God. Like if that's you, I want you to hear me say that you are in the perfect position to be used by God. That's why Jesus, if you remember his sermon on the mountain, he says, blessed are the poor. 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. Or whenever Paul, whenever Paul makes the declaration in 2 Corinthians 12, what does he say? Jesus comes to him, he says, but Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, my insults, and my persecutions, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Don't you get it? In God's economy, in God's economy, the best ability is availability, and at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. That's why the angels, they told the shepherds, you see it? I bring you good news for all the people, not for some of the people. See, the gospel, which is literally translated good news, it's a declaration for all people, not just the elite. Verse, uh, that's why Isaiah 9 says it this way. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. He didn't multiply Israel. He's multiplying the nations. And he's going to give them joy. Joy in Jesus is deeper than happiness. Happiness is tied to your circumstances. That's why we get it from happenstance. Joy goes deeper. Joy is something that fills the void in your heart. And here's what the gospel on Christmas gives you. It gives you a son that's born a child that is given, a God in the flesh that would come to live your perfect life and die your death in your place and raise from the dead so that he could go and fill the deeper parts. That's why at the cross, when Jesus sacrificed yourself and became your substitute, he didn't say try harder. He said, it is finished. Maybe the greatest Greek word in the Bible to telestai. It is finished. You are part of my family now. What Christmas does is it, it answers life's deepest questions. And it tells you exactly how God feels about you. Look at it in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior. Christ the Lord. Sometimes I don't like that word saved because it sounds like that old Southern Baptist preacher. You know what I mean? He's saved. The reality is there's no better word. Jesus didn't come to make you a better version of yourself. He didn't come to give you a better life. He came to save you save you from a life of despair and save you from a life that's separated from him. Do you see how he did it? He's Christ the Lord. That's Kyrios Christos. Both of those words matter deeply. And there, there are titles that are attributed to Jesus. Like, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus' last name is not Christ. He wasn't born to Joseph Christ. Christ is a title that's given to him. It's a position. Christos, it means the anointed one of the house of David. Think about what God promised to David. God told David, you would have a son who would sit on my throne and he would rule with equity and justice forever and ever and ever. That is your Messiah. Think about what he told the nation of Israel in Isaiah 9. Look at it again. Of the increase of his government, there is peace and there will be no end. Doesn't that sound great? One day when your Messiah comes back, there will be peace that is never ending. On the throne of David, there it is and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, Jesus' kingdom will continue to expand to all nations, and there will be peace and joy that will never end, and it will be with justice and righteousness. Christmas, Christmas isn't just about gifts. It's about the greatest gift ever given, the anointed one, the Messiah, coming in to establish a better kingdom. That's why he isn't just Christos. He's not just the anointed one, but he's also Kyrios, which means Lord. He is Christ the Lord. Lord means that he is the ruler. He's the king. Lord means that it confronts the fact that there really is a king, and it's not you. See, what Luke wants you to see is that in this world, you have to choose who's going to be the king. Is it going to be Caesar, Augustus, or Christ the Lord? 
Because that's the human condition and that's the struggle in all of our lives. Am I going to be a man that's trying to become God or am I gonna submit to a God who became man? One kingdom has led to over 3,000 years of turmoil and struggle and strife. And the other kingdom, the other kingdom has continually advanced justice and equality and will one day fix this world. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. You know what the sign was? The sign was not Jesus' significance. It was his insignificance. Think about that. He entered the world as a lowly baby so that he could become a mighty God. He lived the life of humility and gentleness, but he reigned and rescued a people as king. And the king of the world was born in the place to become the Passover lamb so that he could be wrapped up and laid down in a manger and kept for sacrifice. See, all that was done to bring ultimate, everlasting peace to this world and to usher in a new kingdom. That's why, that's why God gave the shepherds the greatest glimpse. He pulls back the curtain of heaven and you see the angels come down and they say, and suddenly there was a multitude of angels, of heavenly hosts. Multitude means more than can be numbered. Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, what is it? Peace among those whom he is pleased. Y'all, Christmas is the culmination of the greatest story ever told. And it is the answer to what every human heart longs for. Ultimate peace. And it tells you how God is going to fix the world. See, way back, way back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and if you didn't know this, the very first sin wasn't eating a piece of fruit. The very first sin was looking at God and saying, I don't need you. I can be my own God. It's the same exact sin that we all struggle with. Well, after that happened and there's a separation between God and man, do you know what God does? Check it out. He kills an animal. He clothes them and protects them. Martin Luther called this the proto, you remember that word? The first, proto, euangelion, where you get the word evangelism from, which is actually the word gospel. The very first gospel, what is he showing you in Genesis chapter three? Hey, one day I'm gonna kill something to clothe you in my righteousness. But that something isn't gonna be an animal, that something is gonna be me. I'm gonna come and I'm gonna put myself on the altar so that I can actually clothe you in righteousness and fix the very thing that you messed up. And then he says, from that time forth and forevermore, God was setting out on the greatest rescue plan known to man. And one day, that separation between heaven and earth, Revelation chapter 21, what does he say? He says, heaven will come down to earth. I will be their God and they will be my people and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying anymore for the former things have passed away. If you ever go and read it, Genesis chapter one and two and Genesis, or Revelation chapter 21 look exactly the same. God and man living in perfect unity forever and ever and ever. And at the center point of that is the Christmas story where God would put on flesh and live your perfect life to clothe you in righteousness, to fix what has broken this world. Now, if you didn't know this, Christmas is the greatest relaxer that you need. In a world filled with anxiety, you need hope. See, too many of us are, too many of us are experiencing a life that is just struggle. 
But if you get the gospel, listen to what 1 John 4, 18 says. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The perfect love was a person. That person came into this world to fix what's ultimately broken. And because he has already won the victory, you can sleep the sleep of life. You can relax. There's nothing to be anxious about. So what Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, if some of you are struggling this Christmas season, and I know you are, here's what I need you to know. The God of heaven came down to earth to bring you peace. John, 4, John 14, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as this world gives it to you, that I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down the dividing walls of hostility. See, when the angels came, you remember what they said? Fear not. That wasn't just a command to the shepherds, it's a command to you too. You have nothing to be afraid of because your king brought you great joy and everlasting peace. He's the God of all comfort. He's the God who will break down every dividing wall of hostility. Like Dr. Tony Evans said, peace doesn't mean you won't have problems. It means your problems won't have you. In this world, Jesus doesn't offer to change your circumstances, but what he does is he gives you a hope that ultimately he's going to fix everything that this world has broken. Maybe C.S. Lewis said it best. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. What Christmas offers you is the ability to draw near to God because he drew near to you. See, what you got to understand is he is a wonderful counselor. So wonderful the Christmas story is that words can't even describe it. But he entered into humanity so that he can counsel you. He can be your refuge and your hope. I told you this weeks ago, from an authoritative standpoint, he wants to lead your life. He is your mighty God. So mighty that he conquered the world and everything in it to give you hope. He's an everlasting father. Everlasting means never ending, means always and forever. Like Paul would tell Timothy, even when you are faithless, he remains faithful. Everlasting Father. And he is your prince of peace. Peace. That's what Christmas ultimately gives you. Peace. Father, I pray that this Christmas season would be ultimately held up in our hearts and in our minds by the peace that you came to give each and every one of us. Lord, you didn't have to do what you did. You didn't have to live our perfect life. You didn't have to enter into humanity. You didn't have to give us details like Caesar Augustus, who is 
who was Gaius Octavius. You didn't have to tell us about Cornelius. You didn't have to tell us about the shepherds, but you did all of this to give us hope and peace. So Father, I pray for each and every person that is hearing my voice, whether it be on the internet or in this room, that whatever is wrestling inside of them, whatever is unsettled within them, that they would find peace in you. Thank you, Jesus. You didn't just come to bring us to heaven, but you came to live in us now and to give us hope and joy from this time forth and forevermore. We give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.